0: Welcome to On D.O.D. on Federal News
1: Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Glad you're with us this week. And as we've reported many, many times over the past several years, one of the areas of the defense budget that's consistently taken a big hit, especially since the enactment of the Budget Control Act, has been facility upkeep. And defense officials have been very open about this. In military budgeting terms, they would say that they've had to take risk in their facility sustainment, restoration, and modernization accounts so they could spread DOD's limited O&M dollars more toward readiness priorities. In real terms, though, it means they're simply not spending what their own models say they need to to keep DOD's trillion dollars worth of facilities in decent shape. This hour, we're going to focus on the Air Force, which says it finally has a new plan to turn the tide. The Air Force estimates it has about a $33 billion backlog in facility maintenance, and the hole is getting deeper by about $4 or $5 billion every year. The service's 2020 budget does plan a big increase in FSRM spending, 46% more than this year, but officials say money alone is not the answer. We're going to turn most of this week's show over to my colleague, Scott Massioni. He talked with Richard Hartley, the Air Force's Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Installations, Environment, and Energy, about the new strategy.
2: The problem with the backlog, though, is it is a little bit insidious because it kind of sneaks up on you. Sure. So what will happen in situations where the backlog grows, you have impacts on everything across the spectrum of, of airmen quality of life to real issues that could affect readiness. And what that means is you might have a problem with the runway. So instead of uh, being able to take off and launch without any fear of risk, you might have to do a, um, a, a walk every morning to check the runway to make sure there are no, no pieces coming up from the runway that might damage an aircraft so what it does is it causes you to have to do a lot of workarounds you might walk into an office and see that the heating ventilation air conditioning doesn't work right so they they might have to deal with situations where you can't control the temperature Um, that is a problem with quality of life and that in itself can affect readiness because it affects things like like attention to duties as well as retention, but also when it comes to making sure that a computer room is uh, running effectively, uh, that can have a real problem. So those kind of things are, you have delays in your ability to accomplish the mission, you have risks that you you introduce to the the potential to launch a mission, Um, but really what it is at this point, we manage it. And uh, the fear is, the reason the strategy is put in place is with that growth, we just start to see things that we think, um, if we don't attend to them very soon, we'll just be increasing our risk to perform the mission. And I think you heard me mention that in the Air Force, we fly and fight from a lot of our installations, more so, arguably, than any, any other service. Uh, things like our cyber mission, things like our RPAs, our remotely piloted aircraft, things like launching aircraft. So much of our mission, our space mission, is flown from our installations or operated
3: from our installations. If they're not working, there's your risk to readiness. So I remember you bringing up uh, an analogy. It was sort of like an oil change. Jiffy Loop says you should do it every 3,000 miles, but you really wait until 5,000 because that's really what your car needs and that sort of was a way to inform the strategy as to what actually you need to do and what you may need to do a little farther down the road. So with that sort of preface, you know, how, how are you informing the strategy and then what is this strategy doing?
2: Okay, so let me talk about that in a little more detail. And I'll, sure. I apologize, I'll go into probably more detail in this. It'll, no, no, It'll get, get a little technical, but frankly, to me, this is the more exciting part of the strategy. It's the part of the strategy where we start to really look at analytics and data. Yeah. So the oil change is a great example. The problem we, ha- we have right now in the Air Force is with limited funding in this account. And as you if you remember, what I mentioned is we have put pressure on this account this account, this infrastructure account, because of all the, the high demand, urgent needs in readiness and modernization. So we want to make sure that our airmen are trained and ready to go if you're going to put them out there in the fight, and you want to make sure they have the, the the right kind of equipment. When you're forced to prioritize, as we have done in the past, you tend to take the infrastructure and ha- and place lower priority on it for, for good reasons. Right. Um, so what that puts us into a situation, and the oil change is a great example, it's You don't change the oil because you don't have the money to change the oil and the car engine fails and so the engine either fails or you have to pay a lot of money to to fix it and so what we found is that there's a sweet spot in installation maintenance or call it facility sustainment that if you can attend to your your sustainment efforts in that sweet spot you'll minimize the life cycle cost so that's a big part of our strategy is to is to start to fix things before they're so broke that they either don't work or they cost a lot of money to fix. And the the oil change is a great example because if you don't change your oil, what happens? Like I said, the car breaks (laughs) or it gets really expensive to repair. And so that's the situation we've been put in. So we're not just going to fix it with more money. We're going to fix it with a lot of what I call real exciting approaches to sustainment that involve things like asset management. Um, and so what we're doing is, and I'll elaborate a little bit on the oil change example. So really, if you look at most auto manufacturers and you look at the manual, it'll tell you that you ought to change your oil. Most of them right, right now run about 5,000 miles. And it'll say under severe conditions, you might change it on at 3,500 miles. And so how are you informed about when to change it? Well, you can either look, at the track your mileage yourself or you can use the maintenance required light essentially what we're going to do is we're going to use the check engine light and it's going to use a check engine light put on steroids so as a matter of fact a lot of the cars the newer cars now they don't run the maintenance required light uh just on mileage they run it based some of them now can sense the driving conditions and the way the car was driven and use that to determine when you need your oil changed and that's more akin to a maintenance or to a to a check engine light i'm sorry i said the first one was the maintenance required light right. now we're trying to move into the check engine light and, it, and anybody who understands a little bit about cars knows that if you don't attend to a to a check engine light you may have some serious problems that are going to cost you a lot more in the future and so what the installation investment strategy does is it gets to this asset category management approach to find out to optimize our spend in facility sustainment and the, again I'll use the oil change example. So let's say you have a fleet of cars and some of the cars are driven hard by drivers. Everybody has a different driving style so I'm sure you've all driven with somebody who pounds on the brakes, sure. accelerates real hard, and so that puts more wear and tear on the brakes and frankly the engine than a softer driver. Well, if you're changing all the oil at a certain period, you probably need to use the 3,500-mile period because you got to play it safe. But if you have a sensor that can tell how hard that engine's driven by the condition of the oil, uh, you'll know which cars are driven harder, and maybe the driver, and maybe the environmental conditions, and you'll be able to then change the oil in a more economical fashion. And so, therefore, you wouldn't be changing every oil at 3,500. You might be changing some at 3,000, preserving the engines of the harder drivers, yet others you wouldn't have to change until 5,500 miles, so saving costs there. That's exactly what we're doing with asset category management. Uh, we're trying to, to, to use more, some of it is visual inspection, but we're also trying to move into more state-of-the-art technologies where you can have um, sensors sensors in buildings so a lot of this is new state-of-the-art building maintenance techniques that we're going to apply that that we hope will and we know actually will help us save money in the long run and get at this get at this this facility investment backlog without having to pay for it all in just pure pure
3: funding because we know we just can't we can't get that kind of level of funding right um let's let's zoom out a little bit and why don't we go over just kind of the whole strategy in itself because i'm assuming that's just one part of the whole strategy Right. right so why don't we just kind of go through, you know, what's going to be different from how maintenance is, is now and what the strategy really gets at? Right. Okay. So the installation investment strategy is about a lot more than maintenance, as you just, just indicated right, right here.
2: Um, and this ins- what this installation investment strategy does is it has us taking a look at our installations and saying, what do we need to do to ensure that these installations are capable, we'll call them ready, now and in, in 20 years into the future? So it's a long-term strategy, and it looks at what, we, what we're just kind of really characterizing it is as facility or installation readiness. Mm-hmm. And so what's it take t- to be ready? So readiness is, is about more than just maintenance. It's about um, operational capability. And so what we're looking at with respect to the installation investment strategy are uh, really three lines of effort. One focuses on installation readiness the other focuses on modernizing in a more cost-effective manner and the other focuses on innovation like some of the last examples I gave you right if you know anything about the air force's priorities they just happen to align with three of the five priorities <laughs>
3: yeah
2: and but, but it fits very well and if you think about it um, the line of efforts that I talked about there the first one I mentioned, which is installation readiness, really is the, the the most important one. And frankly, the other two lines, cost-effective modernization and innovation, those components of the strategy feed that installation readiness strat- line of effort but I'll talk about um, what's involved in those three lines right now. So from the standpoint of installation readiness, that's the overall, will my installations be able to perform the critical missions that they need to perform now and 20 years into the future? We're doing that through through a, kind of a number of call them sub-lines of effort. One is focusing on resilience. And that means, can my bases withstand any challenges they might face? A physical attack, a cyber attack? Um, and, and so how are we doing that? Well, a lot of Frankly, some traditional ways and some new creative ways of getting at that. Some of them just traditional hardening, right? Bases that are outside the continental United States or bases that are here. You build physical barriers or you harden your hangars. So we'll continue to do that. But we're also looking at this adaptive basing concept where we can do a lot of different things with our, with our bases and installations. And, and that is so that we can then deal with an attack. So it might be spreading the bases out. It might be having a divert facility. So dispersal, diversion, um, the capacity to regenerate some in some form or another is, is all what, what contributes to resilience. Um, another area we're looking real hard at right now from a resilience standpoint is energy resilience. Mm. And so we've had programs underway for a number of years that say, Look, we know that the challenges to the to call it the the grid here in the United States, for that matter, um, are growing. Cyber threats, physical threats. What are we going to do about the case, the scenario where there's a there's a an attack on the the United States electrical grid? Where we're building things like microgrids and and secure power facilities that allow us to persevere through those kind of situations. So that's that's going to continue to be one key line of effort in the strategy. Is is continuing to build on to make sure that our bases are resilient. Another key piece to this readiness of installation, so again, still working on this first line of effort, is better prioritizing how we spend our money. And so we're looking at uh, things like mission dependency indices right now where we look at our facilities and determine how critical they are to the mission and align our resources a little more closely with that mission criticality. Um, Again, knowing you have limited resources, trying to spend them in the most effective manner possible. So the idea of prioritizing our funding and then measuring our success, we're putting in place right now new measures that can actually tell you how uh, ready our installations are. And we'll be able to see how ready our mission-critical installations are. We'll be able to see how ready our support installations are. So those are two of the kind of sub-lines in that line of effort. Um, The other piece really gets to planning planning to make sure that, that we're aligned with the National Defense Strategy, things like our strategic basing process, things like our installation master plans. As a matter of fact, one of the components of our installation master plan here to, to ensure our, our, our readiness, that we can maximize our readiness, is the, the business of looking at our footprint on our facilities. And what we, what we plan to do there is... Is maximize the mission critical facilities and through consolidations maybe demolition is optimize some of the other facilities so if the facility has a less mission criticality we're going to look real hard we're going to look at all of our facilities we're going to look where there might be excess capacity on an installation and and move towards better utilization rates and hopefully with the goal of 5% in 20 years demolish some of our facilities to reduce that overall cost requirement
1: that's Richard Hartley, the Air Force's Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Installations, Environment, and Energy, talking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni. More on the Air Force's new installation strategy after a short break. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servin. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Our guest is Richard Hartley, the Air Force's Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Installations, Environment, and Energy. He talked with Federal News Network Scott Massioni about the Air Force's new infrastructure and investment strategy. It's the Air Force's new plan to dig out of a more than $30 billion facility maintenance backlog. As he told Scott before the break, it does involve spending more money in a sustained way over time, but also new ways to use data analytics to help decide the smartest year by year use of that money.
3: It sounds like there's a lot of prioritization going in here, right? So, how are you prioritizing these? Um, is it do you have a score? Do you, right. you know like how, how do you know which ones are the best and yeah. which, where to put your money, right? Exactly. We have two
2: scores, and uh, we're, we're, we're further developing them as we speak. The one score is what I call the Mission Dependency Index, MDI. And that characterizes an installation, a facility, in terms of how important it is to the mission and it's, it's basically a zero to 100 score, so something that is 75 and above would more than likely be a highly mission-critical facility. Yeah. Right now, we have kind of a menu approach to that that, that defines the facility, like an airfield would be a high mission-dependency index facility. A yeah. communication facility would, again, be very similar along those lines, where an administration facility might be lower on the scale. Um, we're going through right now in an intensive effort with our Air Force Civil Engineering Center and our Installation and Mission Support Center to recharacterize the Mission Dependency Index with a lot of commander input so that we can tweak it and tailor it to that specific commander's needs with a check and balance on the system to make sure that it's aligned with overall Air Force priorities. So that's one scoring system that we use. The other scoring system we use is a combination of FCI, Facility Condition Index, and BCI, Building Condition Index. So there are two indices that are very very closely related that score uh, the condition of the facility. So those two factors, both FCI and and MDI, Facility Condition and Mission Dependency,
3: are used to help us prioritize. How? So, I mean, obviously this sounds intense. It sounds like there's a lot going on. How are you handling this with the limited resources that you have at this point? Yeah. We're worried a little, we're a little
2: concerned about that, as we right. always are when we we, when we go into a, you know, a new endeavor. Uh, one of the, the imperatives for this strategy to be successful is our efforts to revitalize our squadrons. And so we have our lead civil engineer looking very hard at our overall civil engineering capability and making sure that we're, we, we're addressing skill gaps and even resource gaps. So we're looking at where we might not have the resources to do this and Putting together a program to fix that, either through training, organizational alignment, or even additional resources. I, I know you've heard the secretary talk about uh, the air force we need and the fact that that's a bigger air force. Um, that's part of the part of the process we'll use to make a determination about whether or not we need additional resources into this into this uh, effort to to help make it successful. But the other thing that we do have overall support across the air force is to make sure that we're funding the installation portfolio adequately and so that's another one of the imperatives is sufficient stable funding and so what we've done is we've targeted a floor of two percent of our plant replacement value to make sure that we're funded at that level that takes us above where we've been in recent years and so that that we think will be really the the seed money that that will make us successful that's our target for a funding level and we actually as we normally do we receive some end-of-year fallout from other accounts that aren't able to fully spend them their money we're yeah. making sure that we're better postured to spend that money in the most effective manner. So, that, so it's a combination of things. One of them being um, additional resourcing. We do we do expect to apply to this portfolio. I mentioned two percent of plant replacement value. That's fairly considerably lower than what you see in, in, in industry standards. I think if you remember me talking at the uh, six or seven months ago, the industry standards more like four to six percent that's spent on facilities. So as it is, uh, there's still it's still
3: a tight budget. And is this going to be is it location-based or is, are you saying, look, our hangars are an issue, you know, our barracks are an issue? How, how are you kind of differentiating that? Yeah,
2: so that, that's part of the prioritization process. So yeah. we'll look at the mission uh, dependency index and, and make a determination of where their shortfalls are. So, again, coupling mission dependency and building condition. And we will look it, – it typically becomes fairly uh, location-specific, or even major command specific, but we have uh, spent a considerable amount of time looking for themes that are consistent across the Air Force. So where we might see that, hey boy, hangars are a real challenge right now. And that's not the case for us, but. But we may see areas where we think there's a there's a more institutional problem and attend to those matters from more of a corporate direction standpoint, which actually gets into another component. The second line of effort I talked about was cost-effective modernization, right? And that effort will entail things like standard designs, things like early upfront planning. So a lot of a lot of methods to try to get at minimizing construction cost, um, better cost estimating. Uh, cost certified cost estimators a lot a lot of things we'll try to do there that are more institutional in terms of improving overall performance we'll do the same thing for categories of installations where we see there's a systemic
3: problem or a systemic frankly concern in many cases so let's get into to that part so i mean that sounds like there's a lot That has to do with the acquisition process, it seems like. So how are you going to be working with contractors, with people who write contracts, and getting this to all work together, right, for modernization? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. another
2: great question. That that really kind of ties into the two lines of effort, the second two lines of effort, which I haven't elaborated on quite as much, and that is cost-effective modernization and innovation. Both of those involve a considerable amount of effort that we're going to put into improving our procurement approaches mm-hmm. uh, one of them a good example is market intelligence we're working to collect a lot of data and and apply that data to that increased market intelligence to do things like allow us to buy, as a more powerful customer like more of a you know I could be called a costco approach where we can use the uh the kind of the power of institutional buying and to do things like block buys reduce uh larger quantity buys economies of scale try to capture on incentives and and, and some of the commercial best practices there's a whole That's a major endeavor that we have underway right now to improve upon our procurement approaches and frankly in many cases leverage some of the the more state-of-the-art approaches that are out there right now. Uh, So by looking at this at the front end where we spend more time understanding our requirements and using and applying standard designs or best practices. We're going to and are already going through efforts to try to emulate that across the Air Force. So the idea is learning how to do this right, learning how to do it in the best, most efficient manner possible, and using our, call it our centralized capability at the Installation and Mission Support Center and the Air Force Civil Engineering Center to emulate that across the department. So we talk about things like uh, procurement tools, market intelligence and business analytics, I mentioned buy smarter like a powerful single enterprise, uh, reducing internal costs. We don't have as many transactions. So a lot of this is trying to take what might have been more disparate activities in the past and and centralize
3: those or, or try to put them into a kind of a block buy perspective. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and I mean, obviously, modernization is going to save you money. Um, so how much are you going to try and I guess prioritize these three lines, right? I mean, you you have to deal with the stuff that needs your your help right away with right. the first line. then you have to modernize what is going to save you the most. And then finally, we'll get to the 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 innovation part. But you know, how are you going to kind of decide how much to put in that modernization, I guess?
2: Yeah, so modernization for us is uh, really a function of. I'll call it three major areas one is our military construction and and there are two components to the military construction that i'll just call out one is new mission military construction money mm-hmm. that is fairly well it's fairly driven uh and confined by the whole overall programming process so when we have new missions that tends to be the highest priority so it's almost like that money is is kind of set aside and not really available to the overall sustainment of the installation portfolio. So it's the new missions we need to bring on and the cost associated with them. So that leaves us with really two ways to modernize. Some of the remaining military construction funding that we call our recapitalization military construction, Mm -hmm. and some of the other money that's the O&M money, operations and maintenance money, that's associated with, as I mentioned earlier, facilities, sustain, restoration, and modernization. So it's the restoration and modernization piece. So how do we determine how much uh, of that— um, it really does become a prioritization and a balancing act. We'll yeah. make those we'll make those decisions and this is again where we hope to apply a little bit more business analysis and a little bit more more market intelligence to look at the life cycle cost and make more business case analysis trades where we can make a determination about whether or not it makes more sense to continue to sustain that facility or to what we call restore and mo- or modernize that, that facility. Uh, fortunately, there's some new National Defense Act authorization language that allows us to do a little bit more to consolidate facilities and to change our building category codes with, with the easier-to-come-by O&M funding than the tougher-to-come-by military construction funding because, mm-hmm. because of all the needs for new missions in the military construction funding. That account tends to be uh, a little more constrained. The O and M funding now that we're allowed to use to reconfigure buildings will give us an opportunity to to run business case analysis and then make a decision about how we wanna proceed, whether we wanna sustain that facility or we wanna whether we wanna reconfigure it or modernize it. Right. So we're going to really, really, the, the, the simpler answer to your question is we're going to apply a lot of smart business case analysis to those decisions.
1: Richard Hartley, the Air Force's Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Installations, Environment, and Energy, talking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni about the new Air Force Infrastructure Investment Strategy. More on the strategy after another short break. This is on DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbian. Thanks for listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. A few more minutes with Richard Hartley, the Air Force's Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Installations, Environment, and Energy. He talked with Federal News Network's Scott Bassioni about the rollout of the new Air Force Infrastructure Investment Strategy. As you heard earlier in the hour, it includes a promise to spend at least two percent of the Air Force's total plant replacement value on facility maintenance each year, but also a reprioritization of how those funds are spent, along with a fair amount of building demolition.
3: Let's move to the, the innovation side because I mean that's that's something that I think DOD as a whole is really pushing in and I mean as you mentioned, this is very based on the national defense strategy. What what are you looking into? Artificial intelligence, um, you know, big data, that kind of stuff, and where are you going to be looking for it?
2: Yeah. So we haven't really thought too hard, um, at least as far as I know, about, you know, moving into the artificial intelligence realm in in this area. But we certainly have thought about big data. As a matter of fact, we've been thinking about big data for quite some time. And if you ask me what the probably the most significant component or imperative is in our success in innovation, I think it is tied to big data. Because it, that's the information that, that, that gives us the market intelligence. It gives us the information to make the business case analysis to make these decisions. Um, we're counting a lot on the ability to perform our facility sustainment at the lowest life cycle cost by understanding where the lowest life cycle cost is. And that's where the big data comes into play. Fortunately, we've been um, on about a five-year journey to populate our databases to better understand where we're spending our money, as well as what the condition of our facilities is. So I talked about that sweet spot. We're actually going to measure how much of our money we're spending on facility sustainment in what we call that sweet spot and that sweet spot as i characterized before is about where the building condition index is somewhere between 70 and 90 percent if you get into a situation where the building is too far deteriorated the maintenance can cost you five ten times as much just think about you know five oil changes versus the cost of replacing an engine and so what we're doing right now with what we call the big data which very fortunately we've collected uh, and really made significant effort to collect over the past five years is we're going to use that to figure out how we can move things into the sweet spot so it's really a combination of two things it's getting that funding level up to where it needs to be and then having the information to spend that money to optimize life cycle cost. So we're pretty excited about that. And we're actually gonna track our databases. We have a metric in place, uh, at least in the the strategy, we are proposing a metric that that tracks how well populated our databases are how current the data is and how full the databases are Uh, and then we're also going to track as i said before where we're spending the money in terms of a whether or not we're spending it in the most efficient manner from the standpoint of sustainment but also going to track whether or not we're spending it on how much we're spending on the most mission critical components now having said that you can't ignore the non mission critical infrastructure. Because sure. then all of a sudden you have an administrative facility where you have heating or ventilation problems and you have a mold issue. Um, and so you can't have that either. You, know, you can't get into the situation where you're just putting your priority on mission critical facilities else you wind up with life health safety problems in other areas of your portfolio so that's really what i've always felt is the biggest challenge in terms of prioritizing this funding is how much do i spend where yeah. and i'll tell you um... we don't have the rosetta stone right now we have a lot of uh great initiatives that'll get us in that right direction. But we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have to course correct and adjust throughout the process and it, it will continue to be a learning process. But I think right right now what we have are the tools and techniques and fortunately the data in place that really allows us to get started and I think you'll see an immediate impact in terms
3: of the efficiency of our spend. The amount of money that you'll be requesting in order to do this, you know, is this going to change how much you'll need, um, is it going to be, uh, oh, I'm sure eventually you're hoping it'll bring savings, but um, in the beginning, what what is it going to cost and how much are you going to be requesting? Yeah, a key component of this strategy is sufficient
2: and stable funding. So we are asking for what is an increase over what we spent over the re- past few years, and that is the 2% floor that we're gonna try to put in place in the budget. Um, and and so essentially, what that says is that gets us uh, more money than we had in the recent past, and I th- and I would say that that's critical seed money to make these things successful. If we can't spend, if we can't secure enough funding to do this to initiate this effort, we will still be in a situation where we can't change the oil. And If we can't change the oil, we're going to be forced to change the engines that that. That break and yeah. so so getting to the level of funding we need to get to and it's not too far off and i believe we'll get there very soon uh, is is a critical comp- component so yes indeed uh, it, it over and above what we had put we'd spent in the past few years um we 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 hand we plan and hope to get there
3: and can you give me maybe a, a ballpark like a like double or anything like that and then
2: no i think to get to two percent um would be that's a rough number. Uh, yeah. Probably we're probably looking at maybe
3: a, a billion more. Or so uh,
2: that's that's really that's rough per year, approximate. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah.
3: Uh, and then fi- final question would be just timing, you know, how are, how are you going to kind of time this out and uh, when might they see the strategy going into effect?
2: Yeah. So the strategy in terms of an official rollout uh, it starts real soon. The Secretary-in-Chief just signed out a cover cover memo, and so we're, we're getting ready to roll this thing out imminently. Um, so we're going to roll it out from the standpoint of uh, just making sure that people understand it. Uh, the letter will go out to the airmen, and so the Air Force will know about it, and the public will know about it. So we're, we're saying it imminent here on the rollout. With respect to execution yeah we're already starting to execute so there are a lot of components to this plan some of them have been underway for a while so some of these some of the procurement some of the state-of-the-art procurement approaches the idea of getting in and doing strategic sourcing and block buys things like that we've been we've been working pretty hard over the past few years to try to initiate those so some of these things are already underway I already talked about all the work being done in in terms of the the data collection and the, and the data analysis I talked about yeah. the better characterization of our mission critical infrastructure I talked about the, the the formation of these building condition indexes so a lot of these things are already being done we're going to accelerate it and hopefully with the additional funding we're going to be able to to accelerate it uh, and make it and make it more successful so that when that uh, it's it's a combination of the plans the policies uh, the overall buy-in across the Air Force, and sufficient funding.
1: Richard Hartley, the Air Force's Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Installations, Environment, and Energy, talking with Federal News Network Scott Massioni about the Air Force's new infrastructure investment strategy. If you'd like to read the strategy for yourself, it is out now. We'll post a link at federalnewsnetwork.com. One more break, and when we come back, DARPA takes some lessons from social media about how to connect researchers with scientific evidence. That's next on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency thinks social media platforms might be able to teach the R&D community a thing or two about how to quickly connect information from around the globe. DARPA has just launched a new platform called PolyPlexus that it thinks might be able to dramatically speed up the research and development cycle by soliciting evidence about scientific questions from a global community and sharing information and ideas in real time. John Maine is the program manager in DARPA's Defense Sciences office. He talked with me about how Polyplexus works and why DARPA built it in the first place.
4: The driver behind Polyplexus was more about an observation. and And the observation was the incredible power that social media possesses. And we've all seen the impact of all these social media platforms um, that we use, and, and and my kids use a lot, um, and and they are extraordinarily powerful. And I and we also observe that they're more or less undirected toward productivity. And really, the goal behind Polyplexus was to was to leverage the power of social media, but pointed at the issues that we're interested in at DARPA, which is research and development speed and pace and productivity. Um, And so it's really about us trying to take advantage of an opportunity uh, more than it is about developing a process.
1: Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by, uh, you know, traditional social media platforms being, as you said, undirected toward productivity?
4: Um, well, I mean, if you, look at, if you look at the social media platforms that we're very familiar with, like Facebook and, and Twitter and Instagram, um, they're really about developing social connections. And that's a fine and wonderful thing, um, but we all go to work every day, and part of our work is social, but part of it is, in a lot of cases, creating something. And, it's, you know, it's directed activity, directed toward a purpose. So, I mean, if you're in a business, your purpose is to make a product um, or provide a service in the government r&d world our product is research and development and so we wanted to take that power you know we have enormous power today to connect with our friends and relatives in a meaningful way Uh, we wanted to leverage that power and try to move it toward improving the productivity of the national research and development enterprise
1: and what you're doing sounds like it has some things philosophically at least in common with with what we've tended to think of as online crowdsourcing but i noticed you're careful to say this is not crowdsourcing. So explain that distinction, if you would.
4: Um, we are careful not to call it crowdsourcing because crowdsourcing implies that I'm looking into a crowd for an answer to a question. Um, and, and I guess it is it, it, this really is a philosophical point, but when we work in the research and development world, so we are constantly asking questions that don't currently have an answer, and we have to go out really and create that answer. And so... Um, you know, when we ask a fundamental scientific question um, in the, you know, whether you're at DARPA or the National Science Foundation or the National Institutes of Health, you have to go do years and years of work in some cases to develop the answer to that question. So you can ask as big a crowd as you want for the answer to that question. You're not going to get it until you do the work. And so that's, that's really why we try to try to make a distinction between what we're doing, which is trying to use things that are similar to social media platforms to develop new questions and new approaches to problems um, from crowdsourcing, which is really trying to look across a large group of people for an answer that already exists.
1: Okay. So as a practical matter, how does the platform actually work or how is how is it envisioned to work? Because you're, you're still getting started here.
4: Um, so we are getting started. And and I'll, I'll draw a distinction a little bit between two kinds of innovation that are product and technical innovations, and there are process innovations. And to be successful at what we're trying to do, which is, and ultimately we want to increase the pace uh, of uh, of technological development through R&D, we actually have to do both of those. So on PolyPlexus right now, you'll see a collection of tools that really represent the product or the technology innovation. And we have tools where um, someone like DARPA, or it could be a private company, uh, could reach out to a large group of people um, and collect scientific evidence on a particular topic. Um, And In that sense, we are crowdsourcing the evidence that's going to back up some of our activities. Um, We also have tools where people can create small ideas based on that evidence. And we have tools where people can create larger ideas based on that evidence. And there's a public private distinction here, which is, you know, the small little ideas that are sort of like hallway conversation, those are generally considered to be public on Polyplexus. But the larger ideas that re- result from larger collections of evidence can be kept very, very private. Um, and also on Polyplexus, we have tools where sponsors can reach out. Uh, to the to the user community and collect evidence on a specific topic, have converse, you know have have very structured conversations with the users of the platform. Um, there's there's not a single uh, comment response comment response format on the entire platform. It's all very structured. Uh, sponsors can ask users of the platform for evidence. Users can ask the sponsors questions, um, and and so it's really all designed to push toward a better approach to a research question.
1: And I think at least for now, DARPA is kind of the only research sponsor at the moment. You said that that private companies may be able to come in and, and, and sponsor their own projects later on. But describe how those incubators work and how you chose the, that, that first set of three, if you would.
4: Um, so the incubators are actually pretty simple, the, the, uh, as I said before, on the press, the innovation uh, technology side we created these incubators to, to have a structured conversation occur between the sponsors and the uh, users on the platform. And so there's really three basic activities that happen in an incubator. Um, the first is the users of the platform can suggest evidence that might be related to the sponsor's area of interest or question. And the sponsor can promote those or demote them uh, based upon their level of interest. Um, the, the participants in the platform can ask the sponsor a question and get it answered. Um, and, and finally, the sponsor can actually update their area of interest and uh, and in their uh, and their sort of their lanes of of applicability to reflect the, the how the conversation is evolving. But again, so just to, just to pull it a pull on a little bit, these are all tools, right? This is all technology innovation, and what we really want to get at next is the process innovation, and so there is a past to PolyPlexus, and there's a future to PolyPlexus, and the past is we've created a group of of tools that connect research sponsors to the the R&D enterprise in a way that it's never, ever been connected before. Uh, This evidence exchange mechanism, uh, we have a thing, we have a small idea called a conjecture exchange mechanism, you can build ideas in the portfolio section, and you can engage with sponsors in the incubator section. And you can think of those as a bag of tools. And, and what we're working on now is the, is the process innovation that's gonna go on top of that. So how can we take this innovative set of tools that no one's ever had before and actually apply it to our problems in a way that's gonna yield benefit? And that's really what we're working on right now. That's really the, that's really the near future of Polyplexes.
1: So the, the platform is, by design, very open. Anyone can participate in it. Talk a little bit about how you you, you balance that openness, which has its obvious virtues, with the need to, in, certainly in some settings, protect information, protect in, uh, intellectual property.
4: Right. So there's a there's a very clear delineation between what's public on the platform and what's private on the platform. And the public information are, are these information exchange units that we call evidence and conjecture. And those, those are really the kind of technical information that you'd have at a technical, con- uh, technical conference. And, and those are available to everyone. And it's really, you know, if I were to create some evidence based on a research project that I just completed or a paper that I just wrote, um, if I were to create some evidence, that's me contributing to the common good through a, through a small bit of work. And if everybody else does that, I actually benefit from it too. There's a second information exchange concept called a conjecture, which basically takes two pieces of evidence and, you know, users can suppose a relationship between two, the two of them. And, and those, are, those are public as well. And that's really just intended to be sort of, uh, you know, hall, hallway talk at a conference or, or, you know, spitballing, if you want to call it that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just a way to kind of test ideas if it's something you're thinking about. And, you know, even if it's something that's not in your area of expertise, you could you could put it on the platform um, you know just to see how people react to it um, but those are all intended to be either information that's already public in the case of evidence or information that you're as a professional probably never going to act on you know in the case of conjectures and the other tools in the platform are either explicitly private or uh, you can choose them to be private and and that's where you know, that's where things get serious, where people are developing an idea just to ultimately create a proposal and try to get some research money. Um, we deliberately made those private because they're intended to be really secure productivity tools.
1: And Back to your point about research sponsors possibly extending beyond DARPA at some point. Is the long-term intent to kind of restrict this platform to S&T areas that have some kind of, you know, articulable connection to defense applications or open to everything and any kind of basic or, or applied research whatsoever?
4: I, I think actually think that's a hugely interesting question because, you know, in my career of developing software, most of the things that that I've done that were successful did not end up being successful in the area that I thought or in the way that I thought they were going to be. Um, I'm actually hugely interested in how people are going to use this platform for something that I actually haven't even thought of yet. Like, I mean, could you use a platform like this to write a movie script? You know, I I don't know. Um, But I think it's a really, the small company that is actually building this capability has developed a a really interesting set of tools and they're general purpose tools and I just, I'm really interested in how people are going to utilize those tools. This platform is open to anyone that wants to make a positive contribution. And there's lots of people um, in this country and around the world that, uh, that might work in disciplines where they're not part of the R&D enterprise, or maybe they're retired, uh, and they, but they feel, still feel like they have something to, to give and they're curious and energetic about R&D. Um, there's a place for them on this platform. And, uh, and I really hope we can actually broaden the interaction between, you know, everybody that needs R&D done and the broader community that's interested in R&D uh, on, the, on the PolyPlexus platform.
1: John Main is the program manager in DARPA's Defense Sciences Office. We will post a link to the PolyPlexus platform at federalnewsnetwork.com. Earlier in the hour, we heard from Richard Hartley, the Air Force's Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Installations, Environment, and Energy, about the Air Force's new infrastructure investment strategy and how the service plans to start addressing a $33 billion maintenance backlog. That strategy is also posted at federalnewsnetwork.com. And if you missed any part of this week's show, you can also listen on our website or in our podcast feed. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks as always for tuning in. I'm Jared Servu. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings
0: at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night.